Now, I'm not a big fan of my birthday. It's not because I'm getting older. I'm not worried about that. I just don't like the idea of a day being dedicated to me where people focus on me and talk about me and give gifts to me. Yet all of this, I can confidently tell you, is not because I'm particularly humble in any way, because I'm not. In fact, I'm quite the opposite. Uh, When I see people, for example, uh, having their own birthday gatherings every single year, which, can I just add, is a perfectly normal thing to do that normal people do do, my pride, it kicks into overdrive, and I judge them in my heart, thinking, why, why do they think they're so important? Can't they see from my example what true humility looks like? You know, drawing atten- not drawing attention to myself all the time through my birthday. <laughs> but the reality is my heart is wanting people to recognize me. It is wanting people to recognize my achievements and my talents and my strengths, such as my amazing humility, as much as anyone else does. I suffer, as do all of us, from what we could call from today's passage the Babylonian heart. That is a heart that's full of pride and self-glorification. As Isaiah, he describes Babylon in this way. He says, it is the jewel of kingdoms. But he also adds that the pride and glory of the Babylonians, which is exactly what they were famous for, will be overthrown by God. Now, here in today's passage, we're seeing the beginnings of the Babylonian heart as humanity in its pride and arrogance decides once again that it no longer needs God. But before we get to this story, uh, I would be doing you a huge disservice if I said that one of my aims was to preach our way through the whole Bible only to then overlook the genealogy, the the thing that makes up more than three quarters of these two chapters, uh, 55 verses in all, uh, in order to focus on the nine verses that make up the Tower of Babel. Now, I understand that there are very few in this room who would probably love a good reading of a genealogy. Uh, who think that a bunch of old names and places that Zach pronounced very well are extremely stimulating or particularly helpful for your Christian walk. It's often the thing in our personal reading that we kind of zip over after reading maybe the first two. In fact, there might be some of you who would rather have a root canal than spend time studying genealogies. And yet to completely ignore them is also a mistake. Now, I'm not going to pull up my chair here tonight. Uh, We're not going to spend hours and hours working our way through each and every name and each and every place. But before we turn our attention to the Tower of Babel, I'd love to help you at least better appreciate why these genealogies exist here in chapters 10 and 11, so that if you do happen to come back to them in your own time, uh, you decide to cancel that root canal, you'll have a framework then for understanding and perhaps even really appreciating and getting excited by some of the stuff that's in here. In a nutshell, these long lists of names, uh, they're not just a great resource for strong Hebrew baby names, this is the common joke, like Uz, Sabta is one in there, particularly like that one, Magog. Uh, These long lists of names, no, they show us, among other things, God's faithfulness to humanity. These genealogies show us God's faithfulness to humanity. You see, ever since Eve was promised that one of her offspring would crush the serpent's head way, way back in 315, 
we've been left with an eager expectation that at any moment, this offspring of Eve would come and save the day. But as we've seen, the promise, it seems to hang in the balance an awful lot in Genesis. If you recall, Eve gives birth to Cain and Abel, two boys who are great potential for this promise, only for Cain to then kill Abel in cold blood, leaving us, and most likely Eve as well, in despair, thinking, I guess we can wave goodbye to that promise. But then along comes a third child, Seth, and Eve rightly bursts into celebration, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel. It's a celebration because this meant that the promise wasn't dead. It was very much alive after all. Through God's gracious hand, there's hope again. And from here, things begin to look really good for the promise because it's the descendants of Seth, if you remember in 426, they begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So in other words, the world now is filling with followers of God. It's brimming with potential candidates who will crush the serpent's head. It's very exciting, at least for the short term, because before we even get a chance to ponder who this one might be that crushes the serpent's head, the author of Genesis, he pushes the fast-forward button and gives us our first genealogy. And sadly, at the end of this genealogy, which traces all the way through to Noah, what we find is that all of these faithful descendants of Seth, along with everyone else, like milk left out on a bench, they all went bad. Every single last one of them. Every single descendant of Seth who once called upon the name of the Lord descends into wickedness and into violence and corruption, and God's promise once again is as good as dead. Except for the tiny fact that God himself preserves one measly descendant of Seth, the man Noah. But as we saw last week, even Noah wasn't immune to sin, and yet again we're left with the promise in doubt. You see, in some ways, as you read your way through these early chapters of Genesis, it's meant to act like a bit of a thriller because this promise in 3.15 is always hanging on a knife's edge. Now, shortly after Noah, the fast-forward button is pressed again, and in chapters 10 and 11, this is where we get all the genealogies that lead us to Abraham. We follow Noah's three sons uh, with a particular focus on Shem, this guy, as I mentioned last week, he's the father of the Semitic people. It's what his name means, it's where it comes from. We follow him down to this guy called Eber. And Eber is actually where we get the word Hebrew from, right? All the Hebrew people come from Eber. And then we fast forward until we meet Abraham, or Abram, who becomes Abraham, who's the father of Isaac, the father of Israel. And so through these genealogies here in chapters 10 and 11, we see the promise narrowing from the Semites to the Hebrew people, eventually to Abraham, who is the father, eventually, of Israel. And Abraham himself in chapter 12 is given another promise which effectively supplements the promise to Eve. It's another great burst of hope, which we would do next week if we were continuing Genesis, but unfortunately not. But that's chapter 12 onwards. Now, if any of you have tuned out through that kind of whiz through Genesis 1 to 11, uh, I do apologize. I get that some of this is a little bit to wrap your head around, particularly with all the names. But if you have tuned out, now would be a great time to come back in 
uh, to check back in with the rest of us as I want to summarize uh, the importance of the genealogy. Because what we have in these long list of names is ultimately a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his promise. To show us that despite the hardness of our hearts and even our own self-destruction, despite us failing our side of the bargain turn after turn, we worship a God, amazingly, who keeps his promises. And he does this by his mighty power. And these genealogies in Genesis, they're a stunning reminder of this fact. And if that's all you remember at the end of the day when sifting through long lists of names, that that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises, fantastic. That's it. That's all you really need to know. That's the win. Uh, For the real nerds in the room, uh, if you're one of those people who loves your primeval history, chapter 10 is an absolute goldmine. So if you want to go through, find the origins of all of Israel's enemies, you can trace them through to Ezekiel and to Revelation and so on. This is where they all come from. And I want to encourage you, if you're really interested, go have at it. But for now, what I want to do is leave it there, uh, and we're going to turn our attention now to the Tower of Babel. This sits as the, the bridge in the middle of these genealogies, the bridge between Noah at the beginning and Abraham at the end, which becomes yet again another point in human history where we're at risk, or the promise is at risk of fading away. And yet God is faithful once again. God is the one who acts in this story and keeps his promises burning bright. So starting chapter 11 at verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now, this introduction to the story, uh, it's far more than just a bunch of scene-setting facts. Uh, We'll remember the mandate uh, to Adam and to Noah to multiply and fill the earth, right? We see that in 128 and 91. If we remember that mandate, we very quickly realise that these people are not doing what God had told them to. In fact, they're settling down in one place. They're they're digging in like the tick on the back of your neck. They're planting themselves. In this verse, what we see is a rejection of God once again. In fact, when we read that the people moved eastward, uh, this isn't just an interesting orienteering fact. Uh, This isn't just providing some GPS or location data. It's much more sinister than that. Because in Genesis, whenever you see people moving east, it almost always signals a movement away from God. If we think back to the garden, when Adam and Eve were kicked out, we read, after God drove out the man, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, Adam and Eve had gone from God's presence. Where did they head? eastward. They headed away from him. And the reason the cherubim is guarding the eastern entrance is because that's the direction, presumably, that Adam and Eve will be coming from if they tried to re-enter. We see this again in Genesis 13. Lot travels eastward, and what does he find? Sodom and Gomorrah. We see Jacob in 29 fleeing his homeland to go and live in the land of the people of the east, and on and on it goes. And so when we read in 11.2 that the people moved eastward and that they settled there, the author, he's saying to us that 
these guys, they're rejecting God. They've distanced themselves from him. But not only this, they're making sure it stays that way. Everything about this introduction tells us they want nothing to do with God. It's not a pretty picture as humanity decides yet again we don't need God and that the less of him we have, the better. But the narrative continues. In case you didn't know they wanted to reject God, we get it from the horse's mouth in verse 3. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. See that last line, we'll be scattered? Their greatest fear, it seems, is doing exactly what God told them to do, to multiply and fill the earth. So the natural solution is to ignore God, to show him that they don't actually need him. And they do this by building a city with a great big tower in order to try and make a name for themselves. Right? They're trying to create a legacy that tells the whole world, we don't need God. And in this case, or in this kind of instance, I find it amazing how very little has changed, even today. How many of us, uh, even those of us in the room, us Christians, how many of us want to be known for our self-sufficiency, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, telling people how we've made it on our own, asserting our independence and, and implicitly implying we don't really need God's help. For some of us, it might even drive us to doing all kinds of things to ensure that this happens, like lying to ourselves and others, right? making it out as if we do have life together, as if somehow we've, we've managed to align the stars ourselves in order to live the best life. Perhaps, you know, the, the house is always spotless despite the parenting of four kids or you only ever drink matcha tea or you only eat food grown from your veggie patch in your backyard. You don't even go to the shops or anything like that. Whatever it is, maybe it's that you read your Bible regularly and you take notes in that matching pad that always seems to have this perfectly aligned coffee in the top right corner of the Instagram post where you're telling people about it. See, the way that the ancient people expressed their independence from God It was building this large structure that reached into the domain of God, into the heavens, this kind of ancient skyscraper. Now, we don't know exactly what the purpose is for this building. Uh, Some think it might symbolize uh, having God on demand, right? You build it up there and kind of at the top is where God lives and you can ring this bell at the bottom and every time you need God, he'll come and do your bidding. Uh, Others think it is just this intersection between heaven and earth, and so in some sense it domesticates God. Uh, Others, though, think it might even just be a symbol of immortality. So just as we can look out and see the pyramids in Egypt today, as we look at those and we see their existence and it kind of gives us this sense of eternity, well, some think that perhaps this was that type of structure, something that is meant to last the test of time. But regardless of what its exact purpose is here in Genesis 11, The structure symbolized, above all, a radical denial of God. In fact, it it represents a radical humanism, a self-sufficiency, a utopia, a 
achieved without the God of the universe. And in that sense, this structure is nothing new. Uh, Even in our own hearts, we're tempted to boast about our own achievements. I think as, as a Christian or anyone who professes to follow Jesus, a healthy practice for us uh, doing when it comes to just about anything that's an achievement is to give all glory to God, to say, God, God be the glory. Right? When someone goes, wow, you did a really good job at this or this or this, or you're doing really well in your spiritual life, to say all glory to God actually gives him the glory that he deserves for those successes in your life. To be constantly saying it's all him is a really good thing because in many senses it is. In fact, when we go to chapter 12, when, when someone else makes a name, right? You have the people here wanting to make a name for themselves. Who gets a name in chapter 12? It's Abraham. Who gives Abraham the name? It's God. You see, Abraham is just along for the ride. And the opposite of being along for the ride is to make our own name great. It's doing exactly what the people are doing here in chapter 11. But what's worse is that the only other time we've seen this idea of having a name in Genesis so far, if you were to word search this, uh, is back in Genesis 6 where the giants are walking around, uh, creating, filling the world with violence and corruption. And in 6.4, they're in the NIV, men of renown, but literally it's they are men of name. And what's significant about this is this is just before God judges the world with a great flood. This was the last time we saw a large population of humanity having a name for itself. And so when we read it happening here, or their desire to have this happen, it's certainly cause for concern, worried that this might be a repeat of history. But before we worry too much that the promise is crumbling away once again, we have to remember, as with the genealogies, God is faithful. And even this story of human arrogance is not everything that it may seem at first glance. You see, the author of this story, uh, they've added their own little commentary to what these guys are up to. And I don't know if you caught it there, but smack bang in the middle of their plans, I don't know if I've got it, no, we'll leave it there. Uh, The author makes a comment about their materials. He said they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Uh, Annie and myself, we're looking to do a little bit of retiling around the home and we're trying to weigh up, you know, do we pay for someone to do this professionally or do we do it ourselves? And at one point, I walked through Kmart and I could see these stick-on tiles and I thought, oh, they could be used. And can you imagine, right, these are for for freezers, they're not actually for the floor, but if you were to put these on the floor, right, if I were to lay them down on top of my tiles and go, look, job well done, we've retiled our kitchen, I'm sure you'd all agree that it would be completely subpar. We haven't used the right building materials. And this is kind of what the author is saying in this comment here. He's saying, look at these pathetic people of Babel. They only use brick to build things, not stone, with its superior quality that we use. It's kind of designed to make the reader laugh a little bit at how pathetic their efforts are at building this tower. It brings to the forefront the pitiful effort of these early humans in their attempts to rid themselves from God, to distance themselves from him. Yet they go ahead, try to build this thing, and in sweet irony, God, he comes down and ends up paying them a visit. So verse 5, we read, But the Lord came down to the city, and the tower 
the people were building. Now, in this, uh, this is actually one that's meant to have your knees slapping a little bit here. Uh, The humor's hard to miss because what we have here is our all-seeing God, right? Our all-knowing God. He has to essentially crouch down on his hands and knees. He kind of has to stick his head on the ground, kind of close one eye and squint really hard to see this microscopic little structure these people have built. Him descending down points out the absurdity of what these guys are trying to achieve. It's a tower so large and so big that God actually has to come down to see it. It's really a case of better luck next time. Nevertheless, despite the size of the structure, God knows there is still an inherent danger in what they're doing. We've already made clear that it's not that they've actually managed to build a tower to heaven, right? They can't actually uh, have the grandeur they're looking for, but it is this illusion of grandeur that's the problem. This lie that humanity doesn't need God. And that's the context of the next few verses. We read, The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Now we read this and it sounds like God is a little bit insecure, like he's a little bit threatened by them, but that's not what this is at all. Uh, God, he's not intimidated by their efforts, he's not feeling threatened in any way. No, what he's saying is that in our arrogance, if, if we continue ourselves being deceived into thinking that nothing is impossible for us, then we can do anything without the help of God, right? That, that we don't need God. We don't need the giver of life and, and the giver of all creation. If we think we don't need God, the reality is this is a big problem. Any scientific discoveries and achievements, the question is, well, who created the elements to make those discoveries possible? Who designed and implemented the laws of the universe which enabled us to experiment in the first place? In fact, who gave you the brains and the capacity to reason and invent things and discover things and create works of art? Who created and sustains the bodies of our elite athletes, for a good example, because we often worship them, we often give them kind of notes of immortality. We kind of say, oh, this athlete over here, they're godlike in the way that they managed to achieve this or that. Who gave them their bodies? And the answer is obvious, it's God. He gives and sustains and creates all things. You know, a farmer might plant a seed, they might water it, but does the farmer cause the sun to rise? Does the farmer actually cause the growth of this plant? And yet to this day, humanity has this amazing knack for thinking that we do do all these things. We praise ourselves. We take the glory and the credit for ourselves, and it's no different here. In Genesis 11, humanity is on the precipice of uh, perceived complete and total autonomy, right? Crossing a line effectively of no return as they conclude that God is no longer necessary. And this is a fatal mistake to make. So God, ultimately, he judges his people. He confuses their language, and in a great act of mercy, you'll see why it's mercy in a second, he turns them from self-reliance into utter confusion 
as he scatters them all over the earth. Now, why is this mercy? Right? Why is confusing someone's language a mercy? Uh, when I read this initially, I found it hard to, to understand exactly how they would fall on their knees in repentance, <laughs> turn to God all of a sudden from this act. If anything, I, I look at it and I go, doesn't this just break relationship up even further? In fact, when I think of language as well, I do find this a little bit humorous too, and I want to give honour to our past uh, German student minister. I want to give you a quick example of how languages can be a problem if they're confused. Uh, you see, English, if we have the word mist, right, what, what do we think of when we think mist, right? It's, it's fog, it's a vapour, it's like little water droplets that are so tiny, sometimes you'll see a rainbow through them. Uh, in German, some of you might know this, Mist can be translated as manure or dung or animal droppings. And you can imagine if one morning one of the construction workers of Babel Building Co. Proprietary Limited wakes up, he sees the beautiful morning fog and goes, whoa, what a beautiful mist out there, only for the guy next to him to start scratching his head thinking, is he talking about animal droppings? What is this guy on about? I'm sure there's no shortage of funny examples of how confusing language can actually cause all kinds of problems. But the question remains, how is confusing their language a mercy? Well, if you look carefully, the punishment uh, is not only the great antidote to human arrogance and self-reliance, it's only half the punishment. The other half of the punishment we read in verse 8 is that God scatters the people all over the earth. This is a mercy because God's judgment isn't to wipe them out like he did with the flood. Rather, his judgment this time, and pay attention to this, his judgment this time is to fulfill himself what he commanded us to do, to multiply and fill the earth. Can you see that? God's judgment here at Babel is actually a heavy dose of grace as he takes it upon himself to do the very thing he commanded us to do in the first place. Now, there's obviously countless ways in which we can see this kind of tied to the gospel. As God, through Jesus, does what we can't, lives a righteous life, he obeys the Father's commands, that God himself does the heavy lifting, living in perfect obedience to the law on our behalf, right? And that's certainly something worth reminding ourselves of over and over again. In fact, we should be doing that daily But in light of the rest of these two chapters, right, in light of the genealogies we started with, I thought I'd highlight something else which God has done, which we will see again at the end of time. You see, at the end of chapter 10, we read that the world was eventually broken up into different languages, uh, territories and nations, and spread out over the earth. And just as we've seen this was really a mercy from God, Uh, we can't ignore the fact that this was also part of God's judgment, right? It was, in some ways, a curse to confuse all the language and scatter all the people. Yet flick to the New Testament, and in Acts chapter 2, we have the start of the early church, and we see this curse, the confusion of languages, reversed on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down, And it lands on the apostles' head and enables them to speak the wonders of God to every people uh, and every language. So here's Mike Crackett saying a bunch of um, big, funny place names, right? We read, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans, as the people watching on, hearing the wonders of God, 
Aren't they Galileans? How is it then that each of us hear them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. This, in many ways, is an undoing of the judgment at Babel, as the people can now, as one, hear the wonders of God. And ultimately, you fast forward even further, at the end of the age, who are those who are caught up in heaven? Well, it's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. In Revelation 5, we read this. We read, you, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, from this scattering, through Jesus' blood, God purchases for himself someone from everywhere. There'll be people bowing from every nation before the throne of grace. In fact, I've been told even people from New Zealand. What's the cure for the Babylonian heart? What is the cure? Well, the cure is to spend more time in our week dwelling on the character of God, spending time pondering him, delighting in him, being convinced of his goodness to us. Now, how do we do this? And the obvious one, which you probably hear every single week, is to keep spending time in his word. You can never underestimate how important that is. But more than that, reading not just the bits you like, reading everything. Reading the easy parts and the genealogies. Read his whole word. Talk about it with people. Don't be afraid even to challenge others about what they're reading. I think it's a very helpful exercise for us to do. Ask how people are prioritizing God above their own Babylonian hearts, perhaps. Even setting aside time at the beginning of every day and the end of every day for prayer. Right? Begin your day acknowledging who is in control and finish your day reflecting on the day that you've just had, acknowledging his goodness to you and his providence throughout that day, lifting all your concerns to him. Other ways we can do this is to continue in fellowship. And not only gathering together, but, but serving, get busy, giving growth groups, making church itself a priority. And we do this because we know with absolute certainty that God, through Jesus, has himself done the heavy lifting for us, right? just as God did in his mercy in Babel, that he has fulfilled the law, his commands, on your behalf. He's done all the things you couldn't do. And so part of giving over our Babylonian heart to God is to come to Jesus weary and heavy burdened and to walk away knowing that his burden on you is light. To walk away knowing that he is gentle and humble in heart and in the tiresome cycles of life that many of you are currently in, that you will find rest for your souls. In Genesis 1 to 11, we've, we've seen the genesis of humanity. We've seen the genesis of sin. 
But probably most importantly, we've seen the genesis of God's amazing grace. How can you respond in thankfulness this week, setting aside your Babylonian heart in order to acknowledge the God of grace in all things that you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it cuts to the very core of the human heart. Lord, we pray that you would protect each of us in this room from an arrogant Babylonian heart. Help us to acknowledge our need for you in everything we do. And Father, help us to see your law and your commands, the things which reveal your character, as a joy and a delight this week. Help us to continue to pray in humble reliance on you, seeking your glory and trusting in your acceptance, already given through faith in Christ. And this we pray in his name. Amen.